following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Come up in Matthew. I want to pull them together and then we'll kind of see them reemerge in this passage we have today. And so the first one is actually in chapter 11 where Jesus has expressed woe. Now, Jesus normally doesn't get into the woe uh, imprecatory, preemptive language, but he expresses woe to cities that have seen his miracles and have not repented. People that have seen the things that he can do, the healings and the miracles, and they still did not believe. And he says it's worse, it's going to be worse for them than it was for Sodom in the day of judgment. Major judgment on those that have no excuses, that see, that claim to see, and yet they say, no, that's not for me. First thread pulled through. The second one is that we see the religious leaders start to come into the forefront here. We've seen them before, but there hasn't been as much of a direct confrontation. In fact, the religious leaders to this point haven't yet directly addressed Jesus. To this point, there's been, they've mentioned something to the disciples. Why does your master eat with, with sinners? And Jesus overheard them and responded. Or they'll have, they'll have something in their heart and Jesus knows their heart and he responds to them. But this is the first time, and we're going to see this, this theme really emerge in Matthew, where there is bad blood between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. And it starts to come to a head here and takes a really dark turn. So that's the second thread. And the last one is, is really the main one. And that is the heart of God is really being expressed very differently in the book of Matthew. Really, since chapter 6 and the, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, there is, a, there is a new idea where Jesus talks about his relationship to the Father and God as the loving, heavenly Father. And Jesus himself, not as the conquering Jewish hero, but as the suffering servant. We read it this morning. That we, we just saw that Jesus says, Come to me, all. His heart is for those who are burdened and weary, and he will give them rest. And then he calls himself gentle and lowly in heart. These are new ideas. We take them for granted now because we live in this wonderful time of full revelation of God. But in Matthew, as Jesus is talking and explaining the heart of God, these concepts of God as a loving, heavenly Father who is overflowing with grace and mercy, is kind of new territory. And uh, we're going to see that a clash occurs. We're going to have the ultimate rule followers, the Pharisees, come up against the living Lord of the Sabbath. And the result is kind of different than we think. So in this passage, we're looking at Matthew chapter 12, and there's really three pictures. So we're going to kind of treat each of these pictures a little bit individually and then hopefully wrap things up at the end. So let's, let's get into this. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1 to 8. We're going to start with this section. Matthew 12, 1 to 8. And at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look! Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? 
Or have you not read in the law about how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath, and yet they're guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. There's a lot to unpack here. So first, we have this picture. It's, it's on the Sabbath, and the disciples, we find out they're on the way to the synagogue, but they're walking along the road, and they're stripping off grains of wheat and, and chewing on them. And actually, this is, there's a provision made in the law where this is perfectly acceptable. It's not stealing anyone else. What the, what the uh, Pharisees have a problem with is it's happening on the Sabbath. They would call this harvesting and threshing on the Sabbath, plucking wheat and chewing it as you go down, as you go down the road. And so what, had be, what used to be a very basic law in Leviticus, this is what the law says. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. That's the law. So those people who are inclined to think about the law would say, well, what is work, really? You know, you're not supposed to do work, so what is work? And by this point, a whole rabbinical tradition had arisen. We, we, it's been codified and called the Mishnah, but it laid out 39 different kinds of work that were prohibited. And it talked about things like you could only travel a certain distance, because if you traveled further than that, that was work. You couldn't look into a mirror fixed into a wall, but if you happened to see your reflection in a pond, that was okay. You couldn't light a candle. You couldn't tune an instrument, because that would bring something to completion, which was work. All of these rules, and all in the name of trying to please God, that somehow leaving your guitar out of tune was more pleasing to God on the Sabbath. And we, we broke that this morning. Tim, sounded, you sounded good on your mandolin. So, right there. It's crazy that Jesus had just finished talking. Everyone who is burdened, those who are weary, come to me and find rest. And the thing that's going to ignite the, the conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus... It's about rest and a day of rest and the Sabbath and all the rules that have come along. So I used to coach uh, debate and argumentation. And so what Jesus does now is he gives a great four-point argument. So we're going to start with this argument because we all like it when, when someone's wrong and someone comes in and gives a great argument against it. So this first section, Jesus gives a good argument. Point number one. I love this. Jesus starts with, have you not read... These were the Pharisees. These were the teachers of the law. Yes, they had read. They had memorized. They knew all of it. But Jesus starts with, hey, have you not seen this part in the Bible? Have you not read? And then we have this story. And I know that some of you story people, Tom, Tatlow, and others, Jesus starts with a story, right? Stories are pervasive, and they're convincing, and they're relatable. He starts with a story that everyone knows. David is on the run. He's hungry. He's with his, band, his, his group of people. They need food. They get to the tabernacle and they say, do you have any food? And the priest said, we just have the bread of the presence, which only priests are allowed to eat. And the, the long and short of the story is that David and his men eat the special bread of the presence of the Lord. And then nothing happens to them. There's no lightning that comes down. They don't get struck dead. The Bible does not condemn them anywhere for this act. Jesus says, they, they, they violated this temple law, and it was okay. Interesting. Scripture records no judgment upon them. Next, Jesus points out that the priests themselves, all they do is work on the Sabbath. 
Like, that's their main time that they work. They are, they're dealing with carcasses and animals and blood and throwing things around and fire and all of these things. You know, we're saying normal people can't light a candle, but the priests are dealing with, with fires and barbecues all Sabbath. And he says, and that's okay. Really what's happening is that it should be clear to those who interpret the law that there are there is the law and then there is a current of truth running beneath the law. That the law points to something else. And it's not about obeying the, the details of the law. There is something bigger, stronger, more powerful that is at work under the law. And we're going to see in, in, this, in this chapter that mercy plays a big role in that. There's more in important truths at work. But the Pharisees don't see it that way. They see the, the law, they see these rules um, as a way to condemn. And that's why Jesus points out their ignorance in verse 7. He says, you, you don't know what it means that mercy is better than sacrifice or you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. What's amazing is the Pharisees, the person they are condemning is the Lord of the Sabbath. They are standing in condemnation over their Creator because they love these rules. They love the way that that works. So that's point number two is that the priests, they do work on the Sabbath and that's okay. Number three, if the priests were excused because you could say, well, okay, the temple is really important. So it's okay that the priests work on the Sabbath, that the Sabbath law, that they defy it because they're working for the temple. And Jesus is ready with that. He says, that something greater than the temple is here now. The kingdom of God, ushered in by the presence of Christ, is in the world, and it's greater. And it should be clear to those watching that this is part of this greater truth that has arrived. That they, that the, the, the pre, the, uh, sorry, I keep saying priests, the Pharisees are, um, are caught up in this idea of the Sabbath and missing the kingdom of God that is arriving in their midst and being revealed in the person of Christ. And that's point number four that Jesus ramps up to. Verse eight. He says this very clearly. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. It is a really clear claim of divinity that Jesus is making. There's only a few that he has, but this is a very strong one. He has called himself the Son of Man repeatedly. And now he says this 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 law that has been put in place that a day is wholly set aside to God, that's my day. I am Lord of the Sabbath. It is a holy day set aside for God, and it is mine alone. And what he's saying is you don't get the Sabbath, you don't understand why the Sabbath works, because you don't understand who God is, really. You know the law, but you don't know the lawgiver. You're missing a greater piece that's underneath it. Um, I've got three kids that are all under age 11, and so the Chronicles of Narnia have been a big part of our house. We keep going through it, kind of reintroducing it to the next kid as they get old enough. And there's, there's a great part in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's, it's the, you know, the, the pinnacle part where Aslan has been killed, who represents, who represents Jesus, has been killed on the stone table. And Mary and Lucy show up and they see his dead body on the stone table and they weep and they cry. Why? How could this be? Why did Aslan allow himself to be captured and killed by the, the white witch? And they turn away and they hear a loud crack behind them. And Aslan himself, in full glory, a great lion, appears in front of them. And they have all these questions. How is this possible? 
And part of Aslan's response is that the witch didn't understand that there was a deeper magic at work. There was something going on beneath the surface. All she knew was that if, if Aslan died on that table, that, that winter would go on forever. But there was something greater at work that was set in time from the beginning, that was part of the emperor across the sea's plan from all time. And now we don't refer to what happens to God as magic. That's C.S. Lewis's way of explaining it to children. But there is a deeper truth. There is who God is and what his heart is. And what we see in Matthew is God's heart being revealed in the life of Christ. It's being shown who God truly is. And it's not the law. The law points to it. The law is something we're going to get to that. But Jesus is saying, you don't, it's not even that you're wrong here. You can't even explain Scripture. You can't explain why David was not struck dead for eating the bread of the presence. You can't explain why it's okay for the priest to do this because you don't know the law giver. So we're, that's, the heart of God is a deeper truth than the letter of the law. That's, that's I think, wraps up this, this first part. And so... What is that, heart, that deeper truth? What is the heart of God? And I think we're, we're going to start to see that more and more as, we, as the story continues. There's a deeper work at play. And we see that the law, and we know this, we, we stand here and know this, that the law was not meant to fully, accurately show everything about who God is. How can the law show the heart of God? But it was a stand-in. Galatians makes this, there's a great passage in Galatians that makes this clear. Galatians 3, 24 to 26. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The law is wonderful. It is, it is an amazing set of, of rules and documents but it cannot replace the person of Christ making that law flesh and we're going to see what that looks like so let's talk more about mercy because we've seen Jesus speak about it already Jesus speaks of himself as the revealer of the Father and that his and the Father's heart is for those who are weary and heavy laden to come to him for his burden he is gentle and humble and gives rest so we're going to see this now in verse 9. Let's look at 9 to uh, 14. He went on from there. So there, this is, this is interesting. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. So the, the Pharisees that he's arguing with, he keeps walking with them, having this discussion, and together they enter into the Pharisees' synagogue. Okay? So it's a good way to get to, get to worship. And the man was there with a withered hand. Now, some, some scholars think that this was a plant, that the man was put there with a withered hand. But regardless, we know that this, is, this was the Pharisees' synagogue. They knew who was there. They knew that a man with a withered hand was there. And they asked the question. So they say, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they're establishing the rules by which they hope to entrap Jesus. And they're wanting, this is the amazing thing, their plan is for Jesus to perform a miracle to show him as a heretic. That's the plan. It's crazy. They're saying, okay, if Jesus heals this guy, then we know that he's wrong. That's the point that the Pharisees' heart had gotten to. It's crazy. 
And now this is what's, what's interesting. Jesus has been arguing with them the whole way up. And they get to the, the, the temple and I mean, they get to the, the synagogue. And they bring up this question. Like this is their trump card. And Jesus stops engaging. So I said I like argumentation and debate. Jesus gave his four-point argument. And then he's like, you know, I can talk to you forever. That's not going to work. So he cut straight to the heart of it. And he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So which one of you, if your sheep fell into the well, would just sit there and listen to it bleat and cry and and be in, be in, in turmoil and wonder what's happening to it rather than just lift it up and put it back on its feet? He says, a person is more valuable than a sheep, right? So yes! Of course it's okay to do good on the Sabbath. Is that, is that what we're debating? Is it okay to do good things on the Sabbath? Yes, it's okay. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he turns to the man and says, stretch out your hand. And it, you know, there always seems to be an element of, of uh, response to Jesus, that the man has to stretch out his hand to show the thing that was probably his greatest um, embarrassment, this withered hand that he has. Stretch it out. And what I, what I love about this in this passage is that this is a very visible demonstration. The man stretched his hand out. It was there for everyone to see. And this withered hand became whole again. Everyone sees it. And the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. They see Jesus work a miracle of restoration. And their response is, ooh, how do we kill this man? And I, I always, when... when there's, there's parts when I read scripture where I go, that's, there's no way. That's not human psychology. How can you see a hand become restored and think, how do we kill that person? But then you think through scripture. It, this isn't the only time. The Pharisees do it multiple times. The disciples do it where they see Jesus and his, his amazing works and they don't get it. They don't understand who Jesus truly is. You see, the Israelites do it constantly where God does a miracle and delivers them and they're okay for a couple of days until something bad happens and then they sin and God has to deliver them again. This cycle happens constantly and you have to ask why. How can religious leaders get to this point where a man who is performing miracles in their synagogue is their number one enemy? And in thinking about it this week, I I realized that People who have mastered the game have a hard time changing the rules. If you feel like you have risen to the top of the game, you don't want the rules to change. You don't want it, things to be different. You don't, want, you don't want what you have worked so hard to get to the top of to be stripped away from you. The Pharisees had mastered the rules of the law. The game of law, the Pharisees were the winners. They figured out how to do it better than anybody else. And Jesus was saying, that thing that's so precious to you, it's not as important as you think it is because there's something truer and greater that you're missing. And so in missing that, you miss everything else. Jesus comes with new power, proclaiming mercy to the weak. You know, the the Pharisees enjoyed their position of being able to stand in judgment of the people and say, oh, they're not good that way, they're not good that way. And Jesus comes and he shows those people mercy. The Pharisees can't handle it because they have so much to lose. We're going to come back to it, but I want to address this group because this is very true for me. I think a lot of us in this room have mastered the game. If you are a full-time Christian worker, you're kind of at the top of the game. You figured out, 
evangelical church in this time of the world at this, in, 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 this, in this place. And that's a scary place to be. Whenever I'm confronted with stories about the Pharisees, I am struck by how much more similar I am to the Pharisees than to the people that Jesus is ministering to. So I come to him destitute, with a withered hand, with nothing except nowhere to go except gain in Jesus Christ? Or do I come having conquered this game of Christianity and with a lot to lose in the process when I see Jesus actually working in, in the world? So the conclusion is that I, I get from this, this section is that God's heart, or part of it, I don't want to make it exclusive, God's part, a big part of God's heart is mercy. And that's what Jesus is embodying during this time. That yes, showing mercy on the Sabbath is good. It's something that should be done. The heart of God is mercy. And our reaction to mercy might say something about us. You know, it's really easy to, to look at other people, to, to climb to the top of this pyramid and kind of look around and be like, ooh, that's not a good ministry strategy. That, that shouldn't work that way. And then when God blesses it, what do we do? When something wonderful happens, when a new person comes in who hasn't learned Thai language yet and hasn't gotten into everything and hasn't paid their dues in order to be real, and God does something miraculous in them, it, what is our heart to that? Is it, oh, praise God, or is it, oh, something's off here? Our reaction to mercy can re- reveal a lot about our heart. And this is, yeah. Let's go to the last scene. Matthew, 18, Matthew 12, 18. Oh, sorry, 15. Go back to 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them. He healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. And this was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. This is the, actually the most amazing part of this passage for me. Jesus had the power in his hand. He had great arguments. He had the ability to do miracles. He had the crowd on his side. He had just healed someone with a withered hand. There was a clear enemy in front of him who was oppressing the people that he was there to minister to, and he doesn't attack. He withdraws. This is, this is fascinating to me because it, it goes against so much of, of, of what we call human nature. He had everything, and he withdraws. He doesn't withdraw and just say, okay, this is too hard, and quit. He withdraws away from the opposition. The people follow him, and he continues to heal them. And in healing them, he doesn't say, okay, now go tell everybody about me. I'm going to build up my power base, and then we'll let those Pharisees have it. He says, shh, don't tell anyone. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to show compassion on you. But this is just about mercy and compassion. This is not about gaining power. He heals them and orders them not to make him known. And because of this, Matthew then invokes this passage from Isaiah. Um, and this, this description of Christ, when, when I read it, I immediately jumped to, to Philippians 2, where it says that our attitude should be similar to Christ's attitude. Although, who, although he was in the same nature as God, did not e- consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. So Paul is saying our attitude should be this, when Jesus empties himself, when he divorces himself from his rights and his power and becomes obedient to the point of death on a cross, our attitude should be the same. And so as we look at this description of Jesus, I want you to think both how does Jesus fulfill this and also does this descriptive of me and maybe of us. Matthew 12:18. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. This describes Christ. Does it describe our attitude as well? Is this how we are engaging with the world? So there's, there's a couple parts here I'd, I'd like to, to highlight. The first is the first couple, of sent, first couple of verses, actually verse 18. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. A life following Christ is not something that we choose to do. It's not something that we can like create and manufacture in ourselves. The, the wellspring of a life of Christ starts with being chosen, being beloved by God. And even this phrase, with whom my soul is is well pleased. We, we skip over these passages, like these, these Bible-y uh, sayings, but you know, if I were to bring my son up here and say, my soul is pleased with this young man, that would mean something, right? My, my very being is pleased with who this person is. That's true, by the way, but I'm not going to embarrass him that way. But our walk starts with this profound truth that God has chosen us that He loves us, and that He lavishes His love and rejoices in us. This reminds me of Ephesians chapter 1. I, I love Ephesians when I'm feeling down because it starts off with just this giant run-on sentence with the blessings that we have in Christ. So I'd like to read that for us because it's so true. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of His grace, which He lavished, I love that word, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. That's the starting place for this life that Christ leads. That, that, is, that is what we have. That is what we have been given. And then in verse 18, look too. He says, I will put my spirit upon him. And that spirit is, you know, when we look at the Old Testament, the spirit of, of the Lord descends on someone. They pick up a jawbone and they slay the enemy. This is different. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, which is most of us here, I think, and most of us people out there. 
That's what the Spirit of God does, is proclaiming justice to the world. John Piper has a good quote about this, this idea of, of our wellspring of life starting with, with this truth that we are chosen and beloved by God. He says, when the river of your life runs deep, the waters can be peaceful. Too many people today are trying to show the fullness of the Spirit by loudness and harshness and much show. But when the Spirit of... When, when the, the, the first things first is grasping the spirit of who, how God sees us and who we are in Christ and who we are in the Father. And if we can grasp that, then we can run deep like a river. And it's so true. A river can look completely calm on the surface, but the current runs strong through it versus a stream where everything that's happening is right on the surface, bubbling along on top. And what are we called to be as, as believers? There are so many people shouting their message these days. And as you look around, you look in the news, all I see are people shouting. You read comments on things, all is people shouting. Shouting that this government is not handling the corona crisis correctly. Shouting that justice has not been done here. Shouting, shouting, shouting. And people need to shout sometimes because they feel they're not heard. But I guess from this passage this morning, I want to say that is not our way because that was not the way of our Lord. We don't get the world's attention by shouting at them. That's not the way Jesus acted. He withdrew. And we see these great pictures that Isaiah brings forth. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed, he won't break. Something that's already, you know, a reed is, is so breakable anyway, and one that's bruised. But Jesus will never come to something that's already weak and just push it over the edge. A wick that's smoldering, that's, that's not quite giving off light, not out yet, he's not going to come along and quench that. That's not his heart. That's not the heart of the Father. He has the spirit, the spirit of humility in all of this. But this, it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with just so we just are meek and humble. Jesus is meek and humble. We ought to be meek and humble. But there is a hope at the end of this. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. Until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. It's not weakness for all time, but it's until justice is brought to victory. There will be victory one day. That's our hope. There will be complete justice one day. But the Lord is the one that brings it about. The Lord is the one that brings that final hammer blow of now all things are right and all things are good. But until then, the kingdom of God advances like a mustard seed. It advances like leaven through a lump of dough. It's not loud and boisterous and arguing in the streets. It's humble, like Jesus was humble. So we have a hope for final justice. And that hope is in the name of Jesus, which is the hope of everyone. Some final thoughts. First things first. What are we yelling about? Stop arguing about mangoes! Is that... Is that the message that we're getting across? So I think the thing that happens with, with us as believers is when we get away from first things first, when Christ is not the thing that we are projecting, and if we project Christ, we can't project him as an angry, vengeful, power-hungry person because that's not the Christ we follow. When we step away from projecting Christ and we focus on other issues, we move our discussion, we move the focus away from what we are supposed to be proclaiming. First things first, we 
our role, our job is to project the one that we follow. It's to project Christ. And what was he like? So next thing is then, I feel like then this is saying how we live is more important than what we do. It can be so easy to put these issues of living a life of grace and mercy and humility aside because we really have to get things done. Jesus had so many things that he could have done. And when people who are type A and, and, and push the envelope and, and go for it, sometimes I read the life of Christ and you're like, that was a missed opportunity, Jesus. You could have done something there. You could have started, a, you could have started an organization. You could have rallied people. You could have started an underground movement. But he didn't. He withdrew. He healed people. And he waited for the Lord to, to provide what was going to happen. In Thailand, I think this is absolutely true. How we live is more important than what we do. Our relationship with our neighbors, the way that we project ourselves, the way that we show the love of Christ and bear that image forward in this place, that's first. What we do is second. We live, finally, we live to display the heart of God, not the rules of our conviction. Finally, and I think what we come back to when we worship is that our hope, our hope needs to always come back. And this is, this is something everyone knows, but it's a good thing to recenter ourselves this morning. Our hope is Jesus. And in his name, that's when justice will come to victory. And until that point, we live like the one that we follow. And here we see the heart of God being lived in humility and peace here on the earth. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you that we don't have, we don't have to guess about who you are and what you are like, that you have shown us who you are. You sent your Son to represent you and to reveal who you are to the world. And God, I confess when I come to Christ, when I come to the person of Jesus, and I create him in an image that I want him to be in. And I thank you for this, this word this morning, this from your word, that Jesus came as a, as a humble servant. He came with all the power to crush his opposition, and yet he did not, because he was seeking something else. So, Father, I pray that you will, you will show us this morning what it means to instill that humility into our lives, to show grace to others, to be happy when grace is shown to others, to come back and make first things first in our life. So, God, as, as we sing this song, Come Ye Sinners, I pray that our hearts are not just coming for salvation for the first time, but a recognition that we can all, at any time, come back, make first things first, put Christ as the first, first order in our lives, and show you, show Christ. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.